You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there now. Amen. Well, Luke chapter 16, um, as I was packing in Corvallis and getting ready to move over here, I uh, got a phone call uh, and didn't know that recognized the number, and, and so I just let it go to my voicemail. And when I checked it, it was a, uh, a, an acquaintance from the church who um, you know, wanted to get together and catch up and have coffee and talk about our lives. And as I'm listening to this, I'm like, wow, that's interesting that he wants to you know, hang out with me and talk. And perhaps he doesn't know that I'm moving for one thing, but um, you know, we were never like buddy-buddy or anything. That's interesting. And as he kept going, then he goes, oh, and I also would like to speak with you about your investment portfolio. You know, and I'm like, brick it, brick it. You know, I'm like... <laughs> whoa, you know, I was like, and we could all say, "Uh uh-huh, you know, and A, I don't have any money, and B, I don't know what a portfolio is, and C, (laughs) I'm moving to another town, you know, and so, um, actually, I had two different guys call and want to do that with me, and I appreciate that they're looking out for me, for sure, but, um, so, but today, um, I am going to help you guys with your investment portfolio in helping you make investments in eternity, And I'm sure that comforts all of you knowing that I'm a Bible college dropout and had one term of welding at Lynn Benton Community College. And so just get your pens and paper out and start taking notes. And no, I make it sound way worse than it is, but let's just say there was disciplinary actions that had me. No, I'm totally kidding that too. Um, But uh, can he be serious at all? Um, And praise the Lord that actually he is the one today through his word that is going to help us. Uh, learn how to make investments into the kingdom. And so there in Luke 16, verse 1, it says, He also said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. And so we have a few characters in this parable. We have the rich man, uh, which... uh, which so often in the parables is a representation of the father. We have the steward who uh, can be a representation of us. A steward is a household manager or property manager who helps handle finances and property and uh, kind of a home accountant type person and, uh, and a servant really. And so, you know, this can be, in fact, today we are going to apply this to us. It, it can be Christians. In fact, Paul says in first Corinthians that we are stewards of the gospel. You know, we are stewards, we're servants, we're ambassadors of the gospel. And so, um, it can be speaking of us, but actually the context too, is that it's the Pharisees. And so we see that this steward was brought before, um, or or had an accusation brought against him that he was wasting the master's goods. And that word wasting is the same word that describes the prodigal son in chapter 15. The prodigal son, as you remember, a few weeks ago we studied was, uh, you know, went to his father and asked for his inheritance that he could leave early and just go spend it on himself. And chapter 15 actually says that he went off and wasted his father's goods. But the other character in that parable is the older son who was religiously fulfilling his duties back on the farm and was really upset when the wasteful son came back and 
was given another inheritance and, you know, received as if nothing had ever happened before. And really who that older brother is, is it's the Pharisees who they've religiously been keeping the law for centuries, you know, religiously. And, uh, and, you know, when the Gentiles come in to get saved, because in verse one of chapter 15, the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to Jesus to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. You know, Jesus recognizes that the Pharisees are being wasteful in the grace that's been given to them for centuries, you know, for, for, you know, a couple thousand years, they'd been a part of being freed from Egypt and watching the Lord work a miracle in the Red Sea and manna from heaven and a miracle across the Jordan and conquering all of these armies and, you know, a land for them, an inheritance for them. And yet the Old Testament theme throughout is that the Jews were to be missionaries to the Gentiles. And yet instead they really hated the Gentiles and uh, they were wasting all of this grace that had been given to them um, from the time of Abraham. And so the Pharisees are represented in the prodigal son story as the older brother. And then they're also represented as the steward in this case, who's wasting the grace of God. He's, he's wasting the master's goods. So this master... Uh, has this accusation against this steward wasting his good. And in verse two, so he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship for you can no longer be steward. So something we notice about this parable is we don't actually know if the steward was actually guilty or not guilty or or if he was kind of a little crook, you know, and he was stealing the master's goods or if he was just kind of careless with the goods or if maybe he just didn't know how to do the job right and he just wasn't the best job for the category. We don't really know exactly what's going on and it doesn't really matter to catch the point of the story. But regardless of whether he was guilty or innocent, it was a very swift meeting. I don't know if anybody in this room has ever been fired or has ever done the firing, but you know, they don't prepare a banqueting table for you when they're going to come and let you go. You know, they come in and it's pretty much one verse worth of, hey, there's a charge that you've been squandering my goods. And I can tell by the books that that's somewhat true and I can find someone to do it better. So be warm and be filled and hope you find another job. You know, it was that quick, that cut and dry. The guy's letting the screen door hit him on the rear as he leaves the employment office and he's off looking for another job. Uh, So it was that fast. And so he's worried at this point. The steward in verse three says within himself, what shall I do for my master is taking the stewardship away from me? He's firing me. And he says, I cannot dig. You know, I can't work with my hands. Apparently he was afraid of that uh, big Mexican gangster that lived in his neighborhood, Manuel Labor. You know, um, Manuel labor was something this man was very afraid of. He can't dig. You know, I'm a bookkeeper and I don't, I'm not a shoveler. You know, I'm, oh, what am I going to do? And I'm too ashamed to beg, you know, so practically he can't dig. Pridefully, he can't beg. You know, he's like, what am I going to do? You know, I've got a family to provide for. I'm ashamed to beg. So here's what he does in verse four through seven. I've resolved what to do 
that when I am put out of this job, the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write me 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 80. And, uh, and so basically this man has his own um, severance package worked out. You know, he has his own stimulus package worked out. And uh, he's not all that worried about being fired anymore, but he's going to go out with a bang. Now, you can read this in a way that makes it seem like this guy is hostile, you know, and he's like, you think I'm wasting your goods? Well, I'll show you wasting your goods. And he goes out and gives these guys a break on the deal. Or perhaps he says, you know what? I'm going to show this boss what I can do and I'm going to spare myself a job. And no one really knows what ended up happening with this guy and his employment, but he did show himself to be a pretty crafty little guy. And, um, and so uh, he, he, he does his special little deed of business there. And then in verse 8, the master, so the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. So the master commends this guy for his uh, shrewd attitude, if you will. And uh, now this can be kind of confusing. It seems as if in this parable, the commendation is based upon his dishonesty. But that's not what the compliment is for. It's not because this guy was kind of dishonest and went out and did this on his own. But the master is very impressed with his work ethic all of a sudden, his diligence, his zeal and his craftiness. And he's thinking, hey, if you would have done this before, I wouldn't have fired you. Well done, you know, and actually the way I kind of think it is, is, is the master saying touche, <laughs> you know, good one. You got me, you know, and so there's a couple different instances of, of what this, what could be happening. But um, the master commended the unjust steward because he dwelt shrewdly. Um, the Phillips translation puts it this way. Now the master praised this rascally manager because he had been so careful for his own future. The King James Version says this man was wise about his future. And the New King James says that he was shrewd. And shrewd speaking of sharp and practical skills and common sense. He had practical intelligence. And if he would have just shown this a month before, he probably never would have been fired in the first place. But regardless, he goes out and he does this deeds with giving people breaks on deals and the master is impressed with it, and he commends the man on that, saying, touche, well done, you got me good. It's kind of like the story, it's a true story of the car thieves in England who went out and stole a car and then brought the car back a few days later, and they parked it in the, the owner's driveway, and they washed it and scrubbed it, and it was spick and span, sparkly clean. They vacuumed it out. It had a little pine tree air freshener on the inside. It was looking good. You know, come and steal my car and do that and bring it back in a couple days, you know. And there was a little envelope on the inside with a note that said, you know, we're so sorry we stole your car. It was, we were in desperate need for it. Um, you know, hopefully you'll forgive us. You know, here's a couple of tickets to the theater inside the envelope. And we just please go and enjoy a night out on us. 
you know, again, forgive us. We're so sorry. And while the owners of the vehicle took their fancy sparkly car out to the theater, the robbers went into their house, looted everything, stole everything. And um, you can only imagine when the owners of the car returned from the theater and they saw their doors open and things hanging all over the place, they said, good one. (laughs) You got us. I'm kind of bummed out that you robbed me, but touche. Now what are we going to do? But... um, but the steward in this parable is he's sharp, he's opportunistic, he's clever, he's a cagey little fellow. And commercial practices of the time show us kind of what the guy was doing. Uh, God forbid the Jews and the law for charging interest uh, in one, another, one, one another's business pursuits. And so um, there was a way around it. And oftentimes we see with the Pharisees, they could find little loopholes and way to get around the commandments and the law. For instance, you know, on a, on a Sabbath day, they weren't allowed to go, you know, 30 paces from their house. And so what they do is they'd build these little like bus stop type places, 30 paces in every direction. And then, you know, bink, I'm, you know, I'm on base, you know, and then Oh, I'm on base, you know, and that's how they kind of get away from um, fulfilling that, keeping that part of the law. They were so concerned. So in this case, um, they wouldn't charge interest on the bill and say, you know, here's a 20% or whatever. But instead, they would just add it to the bill and just say, nope, this is the price for, um, this is just what we're charging you. And it was just way over-exaggerated. So This man, the servant goes out and he knows that his master has been charging his debtor, you know, a 20% or a whatever percent on this. It was rather high. And so he says to the first guy, you know, how much do you owe? And he said, I owe a hundred. And he says, well, real quick, make it 50. And in his wisdom, uh, he's able to not rip off his master and still get a payment for what is owed while making a great relationship with the people that owed the master in the first place. In fact, he says there in verse four, I'm going to make it so that they receive me into their houses. If I lose my job anyways, I'm going to have a whole lot of friends out there, you know, and imagine if you owed a hundred dollars and someone came and said, you know what? I work for, um, you know, Ed Stobbs and Sons Petroleum and you know what? Just make it 50 bucks. We'll call it good. Half off. All right. You know, I'd be a fool not to do that. And then you hear that guy got fired from, you know, in Lakeview, it's Ed Stobbs and Sons. I'm sure it's not that over here. You know, from the petroleum business. You're like, you know what? You totally helped my family out that month. Come and stay at my house. We'll kill the fatted calf, you know. And, and this man was very wise and very crafty. So he catches the owner in this high interest rate and doesn't diminish the owner's principle And so the owner can't say anything because he's actually been done a favor by having this bill collected and he can't say anything because he'll get trapped in his little uh, breaking of the law that he did. So um, with that, you can't read too much into parables when you study them because you'll just go off in a trillion different directions. Like right now, many of you are already like, well, how can the rich man be God and he's like charging interest when he's not supposed to? Oh my goodness. You know, okay, just don't even look into that, okay? Um, the, the point of the message is found in the rest of the context. So there you have it. And that's just one option of what's going on here. It could be that the guy's just totally ripping off his master and being like, yeah, I work for Bill, you know, how much do you owe him? 
well, just give me 50 bucks, we'll call it even. You know, that could be the case also. But regardless, he was a crafty little man. And um, for second half of verse 8, for the sons of this world, so let's read verse, the whole verse. The master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly or wisely. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation excuse me, than the sons of light. And so here we have Jesus comparing this man who's a son of this world, this temporary world, and the sons of light who are part of a new kingdom that lasts for eternity. And there's a compare and contrast of these two individuals or these two types of men. Now, the sons of this world, who is that? Aren't we all sons of this world? Well, uh, the Psalms give us some insight in who the sons of the world are. In Psalm 17, David says in verse 13, he says, deliver my life from the wicked with your sword. Then he goes on to say, from the men of the world who have their portion in this life. Okay, so we know that the men of this world, all that they are all about, all of their investments, all of their dreams and desires and everything that they, you know, are in their identity and everything, it's in this life here and now. This is as good as it's going to get for them. Boy, that's sad, (laughs) you know, but they're sons of this world. Their portion is in this life. And then Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 tells us that the sons of this world are without Christ. They're aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. They have no hope and are without God in the world. So all their hope is in this world. They're without God in this world. So all their hope is in this world. They're in darkness. But then we have the contrast, which are sons of light. Sons of light, you know, if you're a believer in Jesus here today, you're a son of light. You live in this world, but your citizenship is part of another kingdom. And Colossians chapter 1 verse 12, if you'll flip over there, uh, we'll probably do a lot of flipping today. Colossians 1 12 says, we, we're giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. And so the minute you accept Christ into your life as the atonement for your sin, that his blood has washed away everything you've ever done and ever will do, um, you are delivered from the darkness He who the sun sets free is free indeed. And we're delivered from the power of darkness and the trappings of sin. And we're conveyed like a conveyor belt into the kingdom of the son of his love. And during that process or or during that moment, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. So two types of people, the sons of the world who are trapped in darkness and only have a temporary hope. You know, at best, you know, their worldly treasures will last until they die at best if the economy doesn't crash on them and some schwan in an investment agency doesn't steal it, you know, and get 
put in jail for trillions of dollars of fraud or something. At best, they get to keep their money for the rest of their life. But then once they die, it's over. And so they have a temporal hope, whereas the sons of light have an eternal hope. They're living for then. And so um, Jesus goes on to say, uh, well, he does say the sons of the world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. The sons of the world are, work so hard in striving and learning and they burn the midnight owl, owl or hour, both. It's illegal in most states, but some people do it. Um, you know, they, they work so hard and strive and, and you know, they, all their energies are so that they can invest and get that boat or that RV or that sweet truck or the swimming pool or the Nintendo Wii or whatever it is. Like, I got to have that next thing. And once I have that, I will be complete. And they strive so that they can get up on the top of the ladder, you know, and, and then everything will be okay until I die. Then who knows what happens, you know? But then the people of the, of the light who have a hope of eternity and are given promises of rewards, spend virtually no effort in understanding the God whom they serve, in pouring out their life for that God who they serve. And in doing that, they reap rewards that will be transferred into eternity forever. And yet they don't even care about it. We don't even care about it. There's times I don't care about it. There's times you don't care about it. And Jesus is saying, why is it that people in this world who maybe have a 40 year of, of, you know, pleasure on earth work so hard, whereas we who have eternity ahead of us and have one life to invest in that eternity, we put no effort into it. We're not in the word. We're not serving one another. We're not giving of our time, money, talents, energies, you know, we're just, we're pretty cool with just doing the bare minimum Christianity. And Rory, you're lucky if you'll see me on a Sunday morning, but to be honest with you, I probably will only come once a month or twice a month and probably not going to tithe because, you know, things are, you know, we just no really no energy in, in investing in the kingdom. You know, Hey, let's go minister to this little old woman by helping her move out of her house. You know, I'm filling up the air pressure in my tires on my RV. Can't make it this week, but you know, you know, maybe try me next. You know, it's like, whoa, you know, we need to start being as wise, as shrewd. You know, we need to be learning, striving, studying, and putting the same effort that the worldly men do, but rather into our eternal hope. And so um, we do have that hope of eternity and rewards in eternity. In Revelation twenty two twelve, Jesus says, behold, I'm coming quickly. And my reward is with me to give to each one according to his work. And so if you're a believer here today, isn't that amazing that not only does he save us from ourselves and save us from our sin and save us from eternity in hell and promises us paradise, but he also wants to give us rewards for doing things in our lives that glorify him. You know, even if it's just our personal relationship with him, you know, we're diligently seeking after him. Now, I'm not talking about salvation through works, but I'm talking about rewards through works. And flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8, where we have 
an understanding of how these rewards are given to us and how they can be part of our lives and and really we're encouraged to um, to grab hold of all that he has for us in that first corinthians 3 verse 8 says now he who plants and he who waters are one and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor for we are god's fellow workers you are god's field you are god's building According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. So uh, he uses the example of you guys are like a field. And in this case, you know, Ryan came and he sowed the seed. Whoa, sorry. That scared you guys as much as it scared me. <laughs> you know, he's sowing the seed. And... Um, I need to wear the little thing. Yeah, I know now. Um, but, you know, he sows the seed and, you know, in, in time, you know, I'll be here watering the seed and God will give the increase of that harvest, um, you know, or I'm sowing seeds and some of you will be watering and some of you, you know, we're all fellow laborers. And then he also uses it, you know, that, that you guys are, we as saints are also buildings, And someone came into our lives and laid the foundation on our building. And it says there that that foundation is Christ. There's no other foundation. He is the chief cornerstone of our building. But then after the foundation is laid and the minute you get saved and you become a Christian, the foundation stone in your life has been laid. And now we start building on that foundation. Um, You know, really, it's a it's a picture of our lives. And so, you know, some people, it goes on to say, um, build on this foundation, verse 12, with gold and silver and precious stones and wood, hay and straw. Each one will work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he's built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So we start building on this foundation as believers, and, and, and we have the understanding that one day we're going to pass through a fire, a refiner's fire. And so our building is, you know, and so we want to make sure that this building is built with flame-resistant material. So man, for me, I want to start building in my life with steel and gold and gems. And, and we know from the word that those are things that are done for God's glory and for his kingdom. If you're doing things out of selfish motivation and for your own pleasures and, you know, for your glory or for your personal kingdom here on earth, what you're building on your house with is paper plates, cotton balls, you know, you got a straw roof, you know, and pretty soon you're going to go through a fire someday and it's just going to be like, poof, totally gone. All that's there is the foundation, which is good. At least you have the foundation. You're saved. You're in Christ. You're going to heaven. That's awesome. However, people around you have built with gold and silver and flame resistant things that as they go through, they're not going to poof and go away. And so you'll be saved but you'll be passing through as if you were saved out of a fire. I mean, imagine if your apartment complex built down or burnt down around you and you were all that survived. Imagine what you'd look like and smell like, you know, all your eyebrows are gone. You know, your skin's kind of pulled back tight. You know, your clothes are like you got a couple like 
you know, singy garments on, you know, and you're just like, hey guys, we're in heaven, woo! Does anybody have any oxygen? You know, and other people will have all these rewards, you know, crowns stacked up on their head, you know, crowns on their arms and on their toes. I got so many crowns here, I don't even know what to do with them, you know? And, and, you'll, and you know, if you are the person in the smokiness, you'll be like, I could hold a couple of those crowns for you. I feel kind of out of place around here. Um, and so how tragic it is that men run their whole lives or build their whole lives with paper materials, burnable materials, when you only have one chance to build with precious stones that won't burn away. You only have one chance. And so is your life wasting away? We need to exercise wisdom like this shrewd man who put wisdom and effort and really some awesome tact into his temporal well-being when, you know, we need to do just the same, but for our spiritual eternal well-being. Chuck Smith said, we have one life to live and it soon will pass. And only what we do for Jesus will last. You know, it's amazing to me. I know I'm young and most of you are like, you are so young, you don't even know. But it's crazy to be a dad, a husband now, to be a dad and almost a dad of two, you know, and, you know, to, um, it's crazy to see high schoolers grow up. And I'm like, man, high school seems like yesterday to me. And I thought I was so grown up and mature then, you know, and, and I'm sure most of you could say, yeah, you have no idea how fast time flies. Are, are we wasting our time that goes by so fast investing in the temporal things when we should be putting forth so much effort into the, um, the eternal, more important things that last forever? Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he goes on a little more about this fiery judgment type, refiner's fire judgment. In 2 Corinthians 5, 9, it says, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, this doesn't mean that, you know, if you don't have Jesus, it doesn't matter because you're a good person and, you know, well, I've been pretty good, so I should stand a good chance. No, this judgment is called the Bema Seat Judgment. And it's only for Christians. And, and the word itself speaks of an Olympian type judgment where there's the platform and you're judged according to how well you did. If you ran the race, did you run it well? Are you a first place kind of guy? And as you're there, you get rewards. Then there's a separate judgment that we see in Revelation and read about all over the New Testament called the Great White Throne Judgment. And it's at the end of the ages where the sea gives up its dead, the earth gives up its dead, um, and everybody who's apart from Christ will stand before God and he's going to ask them, what have you done with my son Jesus? And he already knows the answer at this point. And they're going to say, well, uh, hold on, I don't know so much about Jesus, but I was a good person and you know, I was a humanitarian and I helped little old ladies across the street, you know, and I cooked for, you know, a soup kitchen, that type of stuff. So here, you know, here I am. And he'll say, no, but what'd you do with my son who I sent down there to die for you? Because if you could just get to heaven on your good works and your good looks, he wouldn't have had to die, let alone the death of the cross, let alone become a man. If we could just get there on our own, there's the need for him. 
And so Paul says, understanding the Bema seat judgment and even understanding the great white throne judgment, because as people say, I don't have Jesus, they're going to be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. There's an eternal investment for them as well that they need to make in Christ. But Paul says, as we think about this judgment as Christians and for the non-Christians, the terror of the Lord persuades us to be ambassadors for Christ there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men and we're compelled to persuade men with all that we have in us. I want my brothers and sisters to not just go to heaven smelling like smoke. I want them to be able to, as Revelation says, once we get those crowns, we don't go around saying, check out me, look at me, look at me. But we're going to cast them before God and we're going to say, it's all yours, Lord. And forever we're going to say, it's all yours, Lord. And I don't care what I did. It was for you. So this is all yours anyways. You're the one that's died so I could be here. It's all yours. And how tragic it's going to be when then there's the guy in the smoky nothing but, you know, and he's like, I got this, you know. <laughs> this is really cool, but oh, I have nothing. I have nothing to give. Oh, I wasted my life. And I want to persuade men in that area so that Christians will get to experience all that the Lord has for them in heaven. But also I want to persuade the non-believers to come be a part of this and to escape the fiery judgment of hell that also um, lasts forever. So, you know, Paul says that um, we need to, you know, that everyone runs a race. Everyone's running in this race of life. And some run in this race for a temporary crown. It's a Stephanos. It's one of those Greek leafy crowns that might last a week, you know, on a good day, you know. Or we can run for a diadem, for a permanent crown, we can run the race to win. Are you guys running in your Christian life just kind of like, oh, I don't really care, I'm not much of a runner, you know, and you're just kind of like, you know, stopping, getting Gatorade and chatting with people, you know, and doing the moonwalk down the track, you know, and like, it's all good, I'm racing. Why would you do that? Race to win, don't waste your time. Run in such a way that you can obtain the crown. Discipline your body and bring it under, under subjection and get in shape spiritually so that you won't be disqualified. And just so it grieves me to know so many men and women that they're just wasting their time for a perishable crown. You know, they're wasting their energy and the clock is ticking and we don't know how long we'll have. I just, um, our missions pastor in Corvallis was down in Brazil uh, we, our church does a lot with Brazil from Corvallis. I say our church, you know what I mean? This is our church now. But um, we do a lot with Brazil and our missions pastor was down there for a month and we have six church plants down there. And um, as Larry was down there ministering, there was a pastor's conference. And my friend Wellington was there from uh, Recife, Brazil. He's a 28-year-old pastor in Hasifi, and he has a wonderful soccer meeting there, or soccer ministry for the kids, and wonderful ministry. He was at the pastor's conference, and Larry got to see him, and they took pictures, and it was a wonderful reunion. And then that night, as Wellington was driving back to um, Hasifi, uh, he was killed in a uh, car accident. And um, I just, it was my first day in the office here, and no one else was in here. And if you would have been here, you would have heard me weeping throughout the church. I was just weeping for my friend that I, I lost him on this side of eternity. But something that kept ringing in me about Wellington was he ran the race and won it. He had one life to live and it passed too soon in my book, 
But everything that he did lasted because he ran with reckless abandon. And I have his picture on, as my wallpaper. He's baptizing a girl in, in the ocean down there. And, and it's my prompt to finish strong. Every time I see his picture, finish strong, finish strong. And I know he's got some crowns, you know. And, um, and so that you would run the race with endurance like Wellington did. That I would run the race to win it like he did. And so if the sons of men show wisdom and common sense in their dealing with getting a temporal reward, how much more should we be for our eternal prize? Not only that, but leading others to heaven with us to get to share that prize with them. You know, if we put as much effort in our knowing of scriptures and our reaching out to a community and our marketing to a community as a surgeon puts into knowing the human body and studying those thick books that they have as an accountant studies the tax codes of the United States as McDonald's puts into reaching the people that drive by with all of their pomp and advertising and they put so much effort and money and resources into it how much more should we be putting our time talents efforts everything that we are into uh into winning souls for Christ and also, you know, on a, on a extra little cherry on top, uh, getting rewards for ourselves in heaven. We should be ravenously looking for the opportunity to glorify God and to serve him and to know him because we know how much is at stake. We should be sagacious is my word for the day that I learned yesterday and wrote it down. We should be sagacious, which means to be acutely thoughtful and wise in your future investments, your future kingdom investments, and skillful in our eternal trade or statecraft or management. I'll tell you, I'm learning so much. Even in this study, this is a hard study for me. I'm not a businessman. You know, I'm, I'm not well-educated, you know. Um, if there's anything good in me, it's because of the Lord, you know, and His Spirit upon me. But how I'm wanting after even studying this to grow in my understanding so that I can have more finances and things like that. So I can put it towards the kingdom. You know, uh, we should use the gifts that we have, um, to invest. And I was just goofing around in Google finance yesterday, trying to learn something about finances and you can't do much in one day, but, um, Fisher Investments put out an article. You can download it for free if you're interested. Um, It's the eight biggest mistakes investors make and how to avoid them. And I only really understood three of those. And it made sense in the spiritual realm to me. And I thought, gosh, that's kind of cool. The number one mistake was underestimating the time horizon on your investments. You know? And how we just, oh, eternity is like, is it even really going to happen? I mean we're like that, you know, and I'm like that because if we believed with all our heart that eternity was going to happen, how would we be living? You know, I have to say that most of the time I don't believe and I have to cry out, Lord, I believe help my unbelief. But we underestimate that eternity is for eternity. And even as Christians, we're like, Oh, I'm sure the Lord will work something else out in the end, like 10 years in heaven. And then he'll give everybody another chance, you know, and he's kind of cool like that. Right. You know, but according to the word, which not one jot or tittle fades away. Eternity is eternity. It's forever. And, uh, and so we underestimate the time horizon on our investments. And 
The mistake number two was not having clear investment objectives. You know, we don't take the time to sit down and figure out our investment objectives. In other words, we don't come to times of prayer and we rarely come to times in the word and we rarely fast to seek the Lord and how we can invest our lives in serving him. We've never thought about our gifts and we've never cried out for spiritual gifts so that we can edify the body and bring people to Christ and, and have eternity with more people. And so, you know, don't um, neglect the objectives that you need to search out in your eternal investment. And the third one was just um, people avoid, tend to avoid foreign securities when they're investing. Everybody wants to invest in the United States, you know, got to buy me a Ford truck. What are you doing driving a Toyota, you know? And little do they know that most Fords are made in Canada and the Toyotas are now made in America. So whatever, you know, let's be rednecks about it. But, um, you know, we got to invest in, in America, you know? And, uh, and, we tend to do that here too. I'm going to invest in the here and the now and the local when really we need to invest in the, what used to be foreign now is home to us, but invest in the, the future foreign securities. So, um, so the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation. The sons of men. Could you imagine if every contractor that went to this church, every doctor that went to this church, every, uh, uh, lawyer or accountant or, you know, quilt maker or whatever, if every single person used every bit of their resource for the kingdom and to reach Prineville for Jesus, what would that look like? You know, a lot of you are thinking, well, Rory, figure something out. We'll come check it out. See if we like your idea or not. No, my job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Ephesians tells us you're the saints. Let's do the work of the ministry. You know, use the gifts and the resources that the Lord has given you and be faithful in that and watch what he does. Verse nine. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. And so use what they call unrighteous mammon. What he means is money of this world and not just money, but resources, everything you have. If you have a boat, use it for the Lord. If you have an RV, let's go camping. No, use it for the Lord. You know, your every resource you have, use it for the Lord and, and to win souls to Christ. Because one day all of this stuff is going to fade away. It could be sooner. It could be later, but you're going to have friends here. And also you're going to have eternal friends. And if they go on before you, they'll be in at home, welcoming you home. And so um, use those things. It's not bad to have money. It's bad to elevate money to a place higher than it ought to be in your heart. And so um, if you're counted faithful or if you're counted with money, be faithful in using it for the Lord. Verse 10, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. And so, man, if you want to be use greatly for the Lord, start out in the small things. If you want to be a pastor, start out in the small things. If you want to be on the worship team, you know, we call that a great spot because it's up front or whatever. But if you want to be used like that, start out in the small things, clean the toilets when nobody's watching, come by here, clean the toilets, vacuum, you know, wipe off the chairs, mop the floors, do it for the Lord. And when you're faithful in those little things, uh, he's going to make you ruler over many things. Um, 
Therefore, if you've not been, verse 11, faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? I mean, if you can't handle change for a dollar here in the world, you know, then it's like the Lord's going to entrust souls. Well, yeah, I know. I guess that's some grace on my end of the things because I'm not the best accountant, that's for sure. But, um, and verse 12, if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so what a very self-explanatory verse that, you know, you can't um, claim to be a Christian and also have another foot over there really just wanting to be a wealthy person. And that's what you're striving for. You'll neglect the Lord. You'll neglect your relationship with Christ or vice versa. Man, if you're full out living for the Lord, um, you know, money cannot be your God. It's been said that wealth is a great servant, but it's a cruel master. You know, great servant, horrible master. But the amazing thing is if if you have another God rather than money, Jesus tells us that come all you who are weary and heavy laden, take my yoke upon you for it's gentle and it's easy. My burden is light. You'll find rest for your weary souls. And so maybe you're here today and you've been striving after the temporal money. Hey, come to Jesus today and, and just let him, you know, take the burden off of you and let him put his burden on you, which is so easy and so light. Maybe you're worrying about money. Matthew 6 tells us don't worry about money. If you're worrying about money, then you're worshiping money. But rather, let the Lord take care of the financial stuff and just rest in what he wants to do in you. Don't overwork to be rich. Don't serve mammon. Um, Besides, You'd have to follow John D. Rockefeller's three simple rules for anyone who wants to become rich, which is go to work early, stay at work late, and find oil. So, yeah, you might want to just just put your trust entirely in the Lord and don't seek hard after after riches. So, um, such a long study, but it's it's really two studies. And uh, verse 14, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money, also heard these things and they derided him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. Neat little understanding of the... um, of the scripture divisions there, but the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. That word pressing means violently pressing. And it takes a violent, sharp act to pull yourself away from the world and to strive hard after the kingdom of God. And man, I encourage you, if you're in that place today where you were in the comparison of the two, you're a son of this world and all your hope is temporal But man, you're looking on the other side of the dark chasm and there's an eternity and there's rewards and there's riches and there's paradise and there's being with Jesus and there's being with others. Then I encourage you today, make a violent move to press into the kingdom. And really all that you have to do is put effort in your heart and show Jesus, Lord, I want to receive you today. That seems pretty easy, huh? (laughs) 
Lord, that's really easy. Lord, I want that. I want to give up being a child of darkness. I want to receive the shedding of your blood that my sins can be taken away as far as the east is from the west. And I want to be a part of what you have for me in your kingdom. I want to know you, Lord. And you can do that today as we close. Let's go ahead and put our stuff down and have Oscar come on up and Lord, we just pray that um, well, we know that your spirit is in this room. We know that you're alongside people, showing them their deep need for you. And you're within the believer, crying out for them to use all of their energies for the kingdom and to be kingdom-minded. And Lord, right now, we just pray that you would just draw men unto yourself, Lord. And I want to give you an opportunity today, if that's you and you... Right now, in this state, you're a son of darkness. Your portion is in this world. And once you die, it's gone. And do you sense Jesus in this room knocking on the door of your heart? He's knocking on the door of your heart. He's saying, let me in. Receive me in. Let me take away your sins. Let me make you righteous. Let me make you as white as snow. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. And today you can have an intimate relationship with Jesus if you'll just open the door. And the minute you do that, your sins will be forgiven. Everything you've ever done or everything you ever will do is forgiven. And it'll be just the beginning as the foundation is laid in your life. It'll be just the beginning of you building towards the kingdom. And serving Jesus for the rewards. And if that's you today, I just want to ask you to press into the kingdom as we just read. To violently press in. And I think today that that's just supposed to look like you just standing up right now. And saying, Rory, that's me. I want to press into the kingdom. As Jesus pressed into knowing me and became a man. And suffered the things that man suffered. And died on the cross naked and open and whipped and beaten and nails through the hands and nails through the feet. As he pressed into loving me, I want to press in to loving him. And if that's you today, I encourage you, if you feel your heart beating and you're sensing that there's something going on inside of you that, let me just tell you right now who that is. That's Jesus knocking on the door of your heart. And all you have to do is open the door. It's not standing that will save you today, but standing can be shown as a response to the Lord. This is how much I love you, Lord. You hung on the cross for me for six hours. I want to stand for you right now. Is there anybody at all? As you sense just Jesus knocking on the door of your heart, I encourage you to put energy into your leg muscles right now and just stand up. It'll be the hardest stand you make, but it'll be the best stand you ever make. Is there anybody at all? Don't let this opportunity pass. You don't know how long your, your life will last. My friend Wellington thought he had years ahead of him. My friend Sarah, who was killed on a head on, in a head-on collision on I-5, thought she had years ahead of her. I'm so thankful that they knew Jesus and had the hope of heaven. You don't know how long you have. And in fact, the Lord may have brought you here today so that you could come to him because you don't know what's going to happen after this. Is there anybody at all? Maybe you don't have the strength to stand and that's okay. You're not saved by standing, but you can just cry out in your heart and say, Lord Jesus, I believe what Rory is saying and I know it to be true. And 
I'm so glad that I don't have to stand to be saved. I want to be saved today, though. Lord, will you forgive my sins? Will you wash me as white as snow? Will you clothe me in garments of white? I receive you as my Savior in my life. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for living for me. Help me to live a life that's worthy of you and a life that, with reckless abandon, pursues the kingdom. And then also, just as if that's you and you prayed that prayer, we just rejoice because you're saved. And I just encourage you, you know, you didn't have the strength to stand, that's okay, but I encourage you to tell somebody if you prayed that prayer in your heart. And then just as Oscar just strums and begins to lead us into this next song, I just want to encourage you today, if, if the Lord is speaking to your heart, that there's more than this, there's more than what you've been doing with your energies and your time and your passions, perhaps your finances. And he's just saying, hey, look at how the world pursues the things of the world. Will you pursue me that much? Will you put that much effort and tact and wisdom into pursuing me? And maybe just today the, the Lord is so gently convicting you just to go deeper in him and just in responding to him today as we sing this last song, why don't we just stand? If that's you, I don't just, if, if it's like, yeah, you know, it's just another message. It was good. There were a couple of funny spots, you know, it's okay to be, stay seated. But if today you've been moved by the Lord to let everything within you be used for him, to run the race with endurance, to run all out for him, to win, to get the crown that won't fade away, Let's just stand if that's you in response to the word. It's okay if you're not going to stand. We're not condemning you. Maybe this study just wasn't specifically for you. Maybe you're already living that way and that's awesome. Um, but if there's a change, you sense the Lord speaking to your heart today. Um, let's, let's stand and just respond and say, Lord, that's me. I want to be used more for you. I want to invest in you. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County, log on to our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. You can also mail us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. If you'd like to contribute to this ministry, you may also do so through our website or by mail. Thank you for listening, and God bless.